Hello and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am here with, as always, Helen Bond, Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Edinburgh. Hello, Helen. How are you doing? Hello, Dave. I'm doing really well, thank you. And I'm very excited about today's episode. Yeah, well, we're going to really put our time machine to the test because we are going back all the way to the beginning, like the the capital B beginning of it all. Um, the first chapters of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible on the Old Testament to those uh, who grew up in Christian traditions. Um, and we're going to figure out where these most ancient stories might have come from. So, I mean, strap in, Helen. This is really going to put this... Uh, Time machine to the test, see what it's got. I know. Let's see what it can do. <laughs> and to help us, um, we have with us Eckhart Fromm. He is a professor of Assyriology at Yale University. I've heard of that school. Um, Eckhart is kind enough to join us. How are you doing this morning, Eckhart? I'm good. Uh, hi, Helen. Hi, Dave. Pleasure hi. to be here. Thank you. All right. So you might be wondering, we're talking about the book of Genesis why do we have an Assyriologist, whatever that is, um, on our program? It is because there are some intriguing connections between the ancient myths from Mesopotamia and our very familiar uh, origin stories from the book of Genesis. And that's what we're going to dive into today. So, Eckhart, um, give us, for, for those of us who don't spend all day reading dusty cuneiform tablets like yourself um what what region of the world are we talking about what ancient kind of civilizations were producing the kind of texts that we're going to be talking about today from mesopotamia yeah so mesopotamia is uh, in a region in uh, modern iraq eastern syria where in the mid-fourth millennium, uh, alongside Egypt, happened there about the same time uh, writing was mm. invented. Cuneiform writing, it's called cuneiform, it was wedge-shaped. Um, this writing system was in use for some 3,500 years. The last text is from 75 AD, so a really long period of time. And since they wrote on clay, um, which is almost indestructible, uh, many of the texts they wrote, and they wrote about anything from very boring uh, business affairs to their mm -hmm. religious um, ideas, and state correspondence, whatever you wish, all that is actually preserved in large numbers. And, well, uh, ancient Israel, in a way, is is to some extent part of that world for a while. Um, Tineiform was also used um, alongside the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and it is therefore not so surprising that um, you can find some connections mm. between texts from Mesopotamia and texts uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Cool. Um, and then obviously, you know, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, you know, they were exiled. They spent some time in Babylon. Um, you know, might that have been a place where they would have encountered, you know, this, this, this cuneiform language, but also some of these stories that were being told in, in Mesopotamia. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned that we will be talking about the, the stories about beginnings with a capital B, the very earliest times. So it may seem a little bit ironic that the Judeans um, who went to Babylonia uh, were 
in exile there actually at a fairly late point in time, uh, namely in the 6th century BC, in 597, and again in 586, Babylonian troops um, at the time handed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II conquered Jerusalem twice and exiled um, both large parts of the of the general population, but also the elites, including the king, King Jehoiakim, uh, uh, and his family. Um, those members of the elites were brought to Babylon, the capital of the Babylonian Empire, the leading empire at that time. And we know that they indeed, as the Bible claims, lived there because uh, the name of Jehoiakim and a few other Judeans are, uh, those names are actually mentioned um, in a few clay tablets, uh, archival texts that list uh, rations of oil and uh, and, and wine giving given out to these Judeans. So uh, they were there. They were sort of in the heart of the empire um, throughout much of the sixth century. Many of them actually stayed in Babylonia after that. And for that reason, it's very likely that they would have encountered during that time many of those stories that I and many others believe are in some way, some way actually reflected in the biblical mm. stories, including uh, those in uh, Genesis. Wow. Yeah. So, all right. So let's let's set the stage a little bit. We were talking about the first uh, eleven, roughly, chapters of Genesis. The, these are called the primeval history. Um, and I think I think everybody, you know, is probably vaguely familiar with with these chapters because we're talking about the creation story, like the seven day creation story, and we should say stories because there are two. Two versions. You got uh, Adam and Eve, of course, Cain and Abel, um, Noah and the flood, which we will be getting into uh, in some detail, and and then you get up to the Tower of Babel. Is that is that about it? Yeah, that's right. So the, this this first these opening chapters of Genesis, they're sort of taking place in in the same sort of general area, aren't they? Is that is that right? Sort of Tigris and Euphrates, this sort of Mesopotamian area. Um, I mean, is is that one of the sort of obvious signs to you that they're they're likely picking up on the sort of the general stories in in, in this area? I would say yes, and you're absolutely right. Um, this is the part of the Bible that is set essentially in and around Mesopotamia. Uh, the story of, of Adam and Eve mentions uh, the two main rivers of Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. uh, namely the Tigris and the Euphrates River, um, as being uh, linked to the Garden of Eden. Uh, so this is the first hint that the region where we are. Uh, then uh, after uh, Adam and Eve are expelled from paradise. Uh, you have mentioned the story of Cain and Abel. Um, Cain builds the first city. The uh, biblical text is complicated, but many have argued the name of that city actually was the name of uh, a grandson of Cain by the name of uh, Irat, and that seems to be a reference to Eridu, an old Mesopotamian hmm. city. Um, and eventually, of course, uh, the whole thing ends in, in Babel, um, where, um, well, um, some anonymous king builds the great tower and where we experience the confusion of tongues. And Babel is, of course, the biblical rendering of the name of Babylon, you know, a city under the name of the Greek name of Babylon, uh, which was this uh, capital uh, of the great Neo-Babylonian Empire, where the Judeans in the 6th uh, century BCE uh, were in exile. Um, so, yes, I think uh, it's very clear that 
um, the setting of the primeval history indicates there there is a very close connection. Of course, also to be kept in mind is that eventually Abraham has to leave Babylonia, has to leave okay. this area, and and that is a liberation. So you can also see that. Um, this region from the very beginning is kind of flawed. It's not the promised right. land. The promised land, of course, is elsewhere. That's Israel. <laughs> I, I, I'd never thought of that, actually, back, particularly going back to what you said about Babel. I'd never really thought of Babel and Babylon, but now you say it, it's it's really obvious. Helen, you haven't, but, you haven't yeah. thought of that before? Come on, even I thought no, of that. No, no. Oh, there's <laughs> lots of things I don't think about, many things. But can, can, can you, I mean, if we can go back right to the very beginning of the story then, the, uh, the, the, the creation story, what, what are the similarities then between the, the creation story in Genesis 1 and, and the sort of Babylonian creation myth? Yeah, so I have to perhaps briefly, I try to be as brief as I can, summarize the stories. I mean, the one mm -hmm. in the Bible, I think, is, is well known. It's essentially one agent, God, uh, who uh, sort of starting in a, in a somewhat watery chaos creates the heavens and the earth, creates uh, animals, birds, fish, eventually creates human beings. And after that, when the creation process is completed, rests on the seventh day. A very straightforward, fairly okay. short story. Um, the most important Babylonian creation story in the first millennium BCE, and uh, here again, um, this is a story that was widely circulated during the time of the Judean exile. So from that perspective, uh, also it's not unlikely that the Judeans, it's actually very likely the Judeans did encounter it. The, the, the most important creation story uh, is the so-called Babylonian epic of creation. It's also named the Enuma Elish, after the first two words um, of uh, of this text, which which means um, when on high, um, this is a text that also describes how the world came into being. There also is at the very beginnings of the watery mix uh, of salt water and right. sweet water. However, in contrast to the biblical story, you have quite a lot of different deities involved. So the sweet water is a deity by the male deity by the name of Apsu. Uh, the salt water is a female proto deity called Tiamat. And then you have a number of additional generations of younger gods. There is a conflict between these younger gods, especially the god Marduk, um, and those older ones. The older ones are annoyed by the noise these younger gods make. You, so we have here a, a generational conflict playing out. It's, of course, also a conflict between genders. There is the female chaotic um, Tiamat of primeval times and the male patriarchal Marduk. Uh, Marduk wins this battle, I mean, reflecting the patriarchal moors of Babylonia. And then uh, in a sort of uh, kind of second creation process, he creates the cosmos and the world as we know it. He splits Tiamat apart um, and um, eventually, with the help of his father, Ea also creates human beings. Um, and then um, the gods essentially can rest. The human beings are going to take care of them. Marduk receives 50 names of other gods. And in the end, he is kind of also almost a monotheistic great god who has assumed all the qualities of the other right. gods. So I think from this, you will see that, of course, it's important, first of all, to acknowledge that the biblical story is in many regards quite different, and most importantly in that it uh, has these many protagonists. It's also much longer. Uh, sorry, sorry, the, the Babylonian story has these many protagonists. It's much longer. Um, uh, and um, it has these these conflicts between generations, genders, um, and so on and so forth. But uh, at the same time, the basic outlines of these stories are also very similar. You have, as I also already mentioned, this beginning with 
with with with God, with 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 water yeah. and sort of making up in the Bible it's called the Tova Vov, a chaotic original word that is then transformed, naming and separating are both very important in these texts. So God in the Bible, as as you will all know, creates by naming things. Naming is very significant also in the Babylonian epic of creation. Marduk receives fifty names, assuming these qualities of the other gods. Um Marduk splits up, Tiama divides her and thus creates the heavens as a, as a kind of canopy over the earth, very similar. Uh, uh, well, God in, in Genesis does the same with the heavens. The stars are set up in in in, uh, in Amaelish by Marduk to serve as signs. Um, and the Bible says the same thing. The, uh, the stars um, and heavenly bodies uh, are meant to be or taught signs that's very similar to the Akkadian, the Babylonian word itatu. Um, otherwise, in the Bible, you have not much sort of uh, sympathy for astrology, but here you almost feel like there yeah. is such a thing. And then at the end, of course, there is the creation of mankind. And where well, the Bible does not, of course, say that mankind has to work for um, for God, that would um, have been far too anthropocentric uh, or morphic an, an image of God uh, for the Bible to present it that way. But it is interesting that. Um, the Bible claims that mankind was created on the sixth day in the Babylonian epic of creation. Men are created in the sixth yeah. tablet. And of course, in the Bible too, on day seven, then God rests. Yes, that is also an etiology uh, for the Sabbath. The, the day of rest uh, explains its existence. But I would say it also is very similar to what we find in the Babylonian story. So there are a number of uh, very pronounced similarities. But as I, as I said, there, there are also very important differences. Yeah. Well, are we, is there evidence or do we know for sure, other than this idea that, that the Judeans were in Babylon in the 6th century, um, do we know that the Mesopotamian Babylonian mythology predates the, the Judean mythology? Like, can we say that for sure? In the case of the Babylonian epic creation, that seems very likely. Um, we don't know exactly when the Babylonian epic of creation was composed. So I would say most scholars were dated to the 12th century mm -hmm. BCE. So that's around the, the end of the late Bronze Age. It's certainly prior to what all um, well respectable scholars essentially think about the creation account, the first creation account in the Bible. The first creation account in the Bible is ascribed to the so-called priestly author that is sort of anonymous. We don't know who that is, an anonymous author who is interested in uh, regular patterns, in, in, in it's very uh, centered on, on God. So the first creation account is very much about God rather than about, about men who are more central in the second creation account, Adam and Eve. Um, and um, most scholars, most Hebrew Bible scholars date the priestly author either to the time of the exile or even to the period shortly thereafter for all sorts of reasons, including linguistic ones I can't get into here. But yes, uh, in this case, we can be sure I, I would uh, say that the Babylonian epic of creation is older than the first creation account in the Bible. Okay, so then, yeah, we kind of get to the, the, the obvious question, which is, you know, do you think the the account that we have in the Bible, you know, borrowed heavily from that Mesopotamian account. And then if it did, is it, you know, taking, taking elements, but also kind of responding? Is it like its own sort of response to this, you know, uh, polytheistic myth that they heard in Babylon and they're kind of giving it the monotheistic treatment? 
yeah, I think that's important. So this is not an act of plagiarizing anything. It's a, it's a rewriting. And obviously, in this case, a very heavy rewriting. Um, so the mere fact that the first creation account in the Bible is so short, whereas the Babylonian epic of creation is so long, of course, shows this is, this is not just, um, well, taking it up with small modification. We talk perhaps later with the flood story. We see there is actually a story in the Bible that is, is, that takes over the, a, a similar Babylonian story in much more immediate and obvious yeah. ways. So, and I really like the idea that this is a, a sort of a, a response to, to what they're hearing in the, in the sort of the world around them. And so if, if they are sort of writing their own version or trans, sort of transforming it in, in a way, what would you say are the main reasons for this? What is the what, what are they trying to get at here? Well, you have to imagine the Judeans being this at the time very insignificant uh, nation uh, at the margins of the great empire, the great world empire, the Neo Babylonian Empire, and this small state is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, its elites are exiled, they are sent to the great imperial capital. So you have now essentially two possibilities. You can either totally assimilate and forget about your national identity, mm -hmm. or you do the opposite. And for reasons that indeed I think we will never fully uh, be uh, never fully able to, to explain, uh, the Judeans were the ones uh, to, to really work hard to cultivate and essentially reshape, recreate a uh, a very specific identity of their their own. Now, this couldn't really be a political identity at the time. I mean, it was a broken state with with no uh, agency anymore. So it had to be really primarily uh, a political, a, a religious identity. And um, the power of that identity is of uh, it was projecting uh, power onto God, onto the one God the Judeans believed in. And that, I think, is what we can see here. I mean, there's only one God left. Um, and um, in Babylonia, of course, you had all these many gods, even though Marduk becomes this great and dominant god, you still, of course, have all these others. So for the Judeans, in this very story, I think a really important point they made was that in their somewhat superior version of origins, uh, things were much more straightforward. It was, in fact, their god who created the world. Of course, it is, it is their god who does this. Um, and in this regard, even though politically so far less powerful, then their Babylonian oppressors, they are actually superior yeah. to them. This becomes even clearer. I mean, at the end of the Babylonian epic creation, I didn't mention it, um, at the end of that text, uh, Marduk builds Babylon. And Babylon, we know that also from other texts about the city, was conceived of in Babylonian uh, ideology as as the bond of heaven and earth, um, so really a place, an omphalos, a navel of the world where all the world came together. This is also, of course, what uh, the biblical what the Judeans experienced. They were they were sent there in, in, into exile. Um, at the end of the primeval history, in the story of the Tower of Babel, of course, as you know, you have the famous um, well story of the confusion of tongues, uh, the tower um, that the Babylonians trying to to create is not finished, and in the end, um, all the different people go their own ways again. So it's a failed attempt on creating empire and this i think is really a classical counter story it's really um claiming the opposite of what babylonian state yeah. ideology and religious ideology was saying that babylon is the center it's turning a centripetal story into a centrifugal one 
so there, I think it becomes very clear what the biblical authors are actually doing. At the same time, of course, I mean, they live in the center of this great empire, and they are obviously highly impressed by I mean, it's architecture, including the Great Tower of Babel, which is the model for the for the story, and the, the Ziggurat, the Temple Tower of the Temple of of, of Marduk, um, and they're also, of course, impressed by these stories that these uh, Babylonians have to tell, and. Another thing is, of course, the Babylonians had a really, really long history. I mentioned that writing was invented in the fourth millennium. Uh, they knew all the these stories about origins. So um, the Judeans also had very good reason to to draw on this knowledge. They thought the Babylonians, with all their flaws, actually also possessed, and that's what they also did. So they would, in fact, for that very reason, not just draw on Hebrew law, but they would fuse their own new religious and actually quite revolutionary religious ideas with these ancient okay. stories and create something totally new out of it, but based on it. Wow. No, I, I, I just love, <laughs> we, we're going to talk about, you know, Solomon and, and other podcasts and things like that. I just, this idea of, you know, the Judeans, the Israelites, you know, maybe not being <laughs> the center of, of the real historical story, but how they, you know, recrafted this and told this powerful story that 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 is kind of, you know, it it, it did change the world. It it's, it has survived to this time. And is it is it accurate? Who knows? But it's um, it shows the power of storytelling for sure. <laughs> um, well, let's let is let I'm gonna I'm gonna fiddle with our time machine here for a second and just you know, sorry, I gotta press some buttons. But we're gonna we're gonna move to a much much further into the future but still into our past 1872 um there was this incredible discovery by a fellow named george smith uh eckhart can you tell us about what who george smith was and what he discovered and why it has kind of changed everything and made a, a career for somebody like yourself yeah <laughs> indeed i mean uh, george smith i think is a hero of every archaeologist <laughs> in a way so he he came from a modest background uh, sort of victorian england london uh, he was a banknote engraver um, but he was uh, interested in the ancient past from an early age on and he he had clearly a very brilliant mind and somehow he managed to um, get access to the British Museum, which at that time was the repository of, of, of tens of thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands of these cuneiform texts that I mentioned from ancient Iraq. All of them, of course, by that time, uh, essentially undeciphered with a very small number of exceptions. Um, and, and very little about them was yet known. Very few people were actually able to read this stuff. Uh, cuneiform had been deciphered only in 1850s. Mm. So Smith managed to convince the management of the museum that they should give him access to these texts. And he started reading them and uh, had a kind of, even without there having been a, a decent grammar of Babylonian at that time or so, he had an intuitive idea of how to read yeah. these texts. So uh, among other things, he is the first one to uh, provide, of course, a very preliminary edition of this uh, Babylonian Epic of Creation, 1875, which he published under the title uh, Babylonian Genesis, already realizing, as oh. you can see from the title, that um, there were, in fact, resonances with the biblical creation story. But more uh, famous, uh, he became more famous through another discovery, which he alluded to, uh, and that was a discovery he made in 1872 uh, when he read a tablet from the library of Ashurbanipal, famous Assyrian king of the 7th century BCE, who had created the first 
a universal library in the history of mankind. Uh, Nineveh had been excavated by the British in the 1840s, 1850s, tens of thousands of tablets and fragments. I mean, most of them were fragments from that library brought to London. So Smith started to read especially the literary and religious texts, and he came one day across a tablet um, well, that clearly talked about a flood, the deluge, was a flood hero uh, surviving uh, thanks to uh, some god helping him out and a number of other features that he immediately recognized resonated very much well with a famous biblical flood story. Of course, in the 19th century in Victorian England, the Bible was much more central still than in 20th or 21st century. And so this was really a major discovery. It, uh, was he, he was so excited, Smith was, that apparently, according to one testimony, he started to undress rather <laughs> un-Victorian <laughs> behavior. <As he> <laughs> and, um, well, and then a few uh, weeks later, I mean, dressed again, I assume, he gave a famous lecture uh, attended, among others, by the British Prime Minister Gladstone, who was sort of an amateur philologist, uh, about this discovery. And that made a big impact, uh, where he pointed out that, uh, indeed, there is a Babylonian Assyrian text um, that uh, has a flood story very similar to the one found in the primeval history in the Bible. Yeah, well, let's. I mean, you you mentioned some of the similarities. Let's let's kind of uh, tick them off quickly. So you, the biggest one, obviously, there's a flood, but there's there's an ark. So so in the in the Genesis story, we famously have two animals of every kind being put on this on this ark. Does that also happen in the in the Babylonian myth? Yeah. So you have. I mean, you have a number of different versions of the flood story from Babylonia, but yes, basically there is this idea of of two um, of, of every right. species. In the Bible actually there's also one version which says seven of every species, which is slightly different. But yes, that's clearly of course a, a similarity. In the Babylonian tradition, a difference is that, uh, that the flood hero would also take some craftsmen with him. Hmm. So there would be some other human beings, not just him. But then there are a number of really very pronounced similarities. Um, so there's one is the shape of the arcs. It's kind of a box. It's not a ship like you would imagine it. Uh, in the Gilgamesh epic, at least, the arc is described in such a way that it's, I think, uh, 300 by 150 by by 30 cubits um, in size. A cubit is half a meter. Um, oh, sorry, that's in the that's sorry, that's in the Bible. That's the biblical description in the in the Babylonian text. Uh, it's 120 by 120 by 120. So it's a it's a cube, but it's it's rectangular. It's it's in both cases. It's not a normal boat. Um, another parallel, of course, is both these boats end up on mountains. Um, the Bible claims that the Ark uh, lands on Mount Ararat. Uh, that uh, is actually the land of Uartu. Uh, you must remember the Bible was handed down without vowels over many centuries. So uh, when they eventually added the vowels, they got them wrong in this case. And uh, the original uh, name of this place was Uartu. That's sort of in modern Armenia. And the Babylonian flood story uh, claims that the Ark landed on Mount Nemo, sort of also in this general yeah. region. Um, when it lands, the, the respective flood heroes send out a number of birds. That's a very, very specific yeah. parallel. It's also yet again an interesting one. So in the uh, Babylonian story, um, the flood hero sends out uh, first um, a dove, then a swallow, and then a raven. The dove and the swallow return, the raven does not. And the fact that the raven does not return is indicative that he has found dry land somewhere else. Oh. In the Bible, it's first a raven, and then it's three doves. Very strange. 
some have argued and probably correctly so the raven is i think from the priestly account the doves are from the yahvistic yeah. account but you can't still not very well explain that whereas in the gilgamesh story the sequence of birds makes a lot of sense because doves and swallows are known to be birds nesting nearby human beings and human dwellings so they return they stay with 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 uh, the flat hero the raven raven of course is a bird not known to be particularly fond of staying that close to human beings the, the raven disappears so it's an etiology for the behavior of these birds and that was probably lost on the biblical authors when they um when they took this story over and so they they changed the the birds and and uh, so this very nice etiology for the birds is no longer there finally another really important parallel once uh, the the arcs land the respective um, flood heroes um, put up an altar and sacrifice to the gods or to god and in both cases god or the gods smell the incense and then approach the altar in the babylonian version they approach the altar like flies a really not particularly pleasant sort of metaphor for the behavior of these gods um, of course that's not something the bible says but you still kind of can see there is a sort of an anthropomorphic yeah. vision of god is very much in need of of, of what human beings provide him yeah. with here. And uh, the final important parallel is in both versions, there's this sort of a covenant that um, God or the gods promise humankind not to send another flood. Um, that's in a fragment, still unpublished, um, the Atomprasis epic is still fairly poorly preserved only, but this fragment is has been mentioned and it's what it says. And that's very similar to what the Bible says uh, happens at the end with the relationship between God and, and Noah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's an incredible amount of similarities. Those, those stories have to be have to be connected in some way. Um, I, I mean, I have I have to ask, although it's an impossible question, but are there you know serious scholars who make the case that there was some kind of ancient great you know disastrous flood that that these near eastern cultures are all referring to in their kind of collective memories is there is, is that is that a theory that's out there yeah um so yeah one a couple of such theories exist they always get a lot of press <laughs> because they usually come from scientists and of course the public press usually considers scientists the only people who can really come up with some <laughs> some, some some accurate stuff whereas we poor humanists are not considered to be to be part of that crowd so one theory is that um in the sixth millennium bc very early sort of holocene um the um, Mediterranean Sea broke through the, the Bosporus at the time, so divided from the from the Black Sea by land, inundated uh, the Black Sea uh, basin, and uh, that this uh, inundation happened very quickly and rapidly and dramatically, and that then uh, there was just this traumatic experience of the waters rising, and that this experience somehow over thousands of years was conserved, uh, not just along, well, where it actually happened, the Black Sea, but but throughout uh, all of Western yeah. Asia, and is in fact the origin story of the flood. I don't buy that. I mean, first of all, uh, there's actually debate on whether the flooding of the uh, Black Sea basin really was as quick as some people believe i can't judge that of course i don't know uh, but to me um, the fact that you have flood stories from all over mm -hmm. the world seems to indicate mm -hmm. that 
in flooding is a phenomenon people experience all over the place. And actually, the Judeans, not so much. I mean, they're living in the Judean hillland. For them, this is not a problem. But the Babylonians, most certainly, um, every year when the spring flood would uh, lead to the rise of the Tigris and the Euphrates, their fields would be flooded. They would experience floods from the Persian Gulf, etc., etc. So for them, this was something very regularly happening. And I don't think we have to look for an archetypal specific event in order to explain the significance of the flood. Sorry. So certainly I would say, yes, there were floods and they inform, of course, the storyline. Uh, this doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, it is based on actual experiences. But looking for a specific flood is just as futile as uh, the attempts by those people who are looking for the for the wood of, of the Ark uh, on Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey today. That's also something that is always covered by the press whenever come, someone again comes up. And they all use very complex technology and so on and so forth. But of course, this isn't going to solve historical problems. So this is not doing the trick. And we have to take the stories seriously as stories and um, as powerful stories, as you said, I mean, that have really shaped not only the world of the ancients, but uh, the world as such throughout history until today. I mean, these, these are still stories that, of course, um, well, uh, are, are fundamental and foundational for billions of people. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. All right. So I, I'm, I, I've talked to Helen about this. I'm going to Israel in a few weeks and we're going to uh, take our family there and tour around. So you're saying don't, I shouldn't bother <laughs> trying to look for the ark. Well, that's not even in the right area. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take that off my list. It was on my list. The one day we were going to look for Noah's ark, but um, I'll look for the, well, the ark would not be in Israel. So you wouldn't find it. I mean, you could look ark for of other the covenant. Things, we could do course, that. I mean, I'm not okay. Saying we'll look for that. Mm -hmm. instead. That That is something that's you could do, okay. but you might actually, <laughs> Stick to that you have one. Have to look for that in Babylon. Oh, okay, well, well, I'll change our itinerary. Um, Eckhart, this has been awesome. Uh, this has been the first test of our time machine going back so far. I think it was successful. Hopefully, we can all make it back. Um, but we'll have to have you back on. I know that you you've written about some other really fascinating uh, stories that have made it to our time, like the the Book of Jonah, which is a great one. So we'll have to get you back another time. But um, Thank you, Eckhart. Thank you, Helen. And thank you, listeners. And we will see you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye. Bye.